This is Macro Horizons, episode 19. Like Kanye loves Kanye. Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of May 20th. And a reminder that trade wars are good and easy to win. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. We've seen the front end push to new year-to-date yield lows and the long ends not far behind. Ian, what's your take on what we've learned since last time? The ongoing trade tensions have gotten to the point that the market has, to some extent, capitulated on this notion that we'll see a deal anytime soon. So in that context, we're not surprised to see the curve steepen out, at least incrementally. We still haven't broken that 25 basis point twos tens level. However, we are very encouraged by the performance of the front end, which was able to set low yield marks for 2019. However, 10s and 30s still remain, at least for the moment, within the range. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't see a push lower in 10s and 30s in the very short term. In fact, depending on how the multinationals trade in response to this most recent revelation on the trade front, we could see equities come under a bit more pressure, which again has been the primary driver of the flight to quality in treasuries. We're typically not the biggest fans of the notion that equities drive moves in the treasury market. However, given the relevance of the trade story to the big multinationals, this is the most direct way that we can gauge the fallout of the trade war. So it's not completely unreasonable for rates to be beholden to the equity market at this moment in time. With that context, we don't expect anything grand to come out of the Fed in the week ahead as the FOMC minutes are unlikely to encourage the further pricing in of rate cuts. Nonetheless, the January 2020 Fed Funds Futures contract is pricing in the largest amount of easing before year-end. On the economic front, we had a disappointing retail sales number. Now, retail sales as we come into the second quarter is particularly informative of the departure point for consumption. Within the details of the release, what we saw was that the core consumption or the control group, which most closely maps to the consumption figures within the GDP release, was effectively flat. Factoring in inflation, it was in fact a slight downtick. All of this really brings into question whether or not Powell's wager that the weak consumption seen during the first quarter is transitory and that the American consumer will come roaring back in the second quarter. 
There's also the lingering question about how inflation plays out. On the heels of the disappointing core CPI number, we'll be watching for the core PCE at the end of the month. Again, as this brings us back to monetary policy expectations, the Fed has emphasized that the driving force behind the next move in monetary policy will be inflation. To say that inflation is the focal point at this stage in the cycle is arguably an understatement. And we'll be continuing to watch pricing pressure as the summer months unfold. It certainly was an exciting week in the Treasury market. One of the biggest takeaways for me was that the core tenant that the Fed has, that the weak consumption data seen in the first quarter is ultimately going to prove to be transitory was really challenged in the form of the disappointing retail sales figures. Now, obviously, this contributed to a reasonable rally in the Treasury market, certainly the front end, but it occurred at a point when the market was already extended towards the bottom of the yield range. Now, that becomes relevant because it is increasingly difficult to break out towards new yield lows for 2019. It did occur in the two-year sector, which is constructive and very consistent with the idea that it really is all about the Fed at this point, and it really is all about timing if and when they deliver a rate cut, whether it's characterized as fine-tuning or not. Nonetheless, the performance of 10s and 30s has been impressive, and we're left pondering exactly how far the rally is going to be able to go. A question that we've heard several times is, what would it take to actually get 10-year yields to sustainably trade below 225, for example? We're very much of the mind that we're going to be in a trading range for the 10-year. We happen to be, at this moment, defining the lower bound, could easily see 10-year yields trade with a one-handle sometime this year, but I doubt that it is going to be this exact episode. And Ian, you made the point about the retail sales data. One thing that I've been paying a lot of attention to is a bit of a divergence between consumption and either the labor market or underlying sentiment data. It really seems like the labor market has remained strong, multi-generational strength in some measures, while confidence is a little bit lower compared to cycle highs, but still pretty resolute. So eventually, I would assume that sentiment either catches up with retail sales, or as I think uh, some of the policymakers are hoping for, you see a turnaround in consumption. Well, and to your point, we've actually seen some of the wage gains earlier this year start to fade. More importantly, if we look at what has occurred in terms of real wages, especially on the average weekly earnings measure, we're far off of the recent peak that we have seen. And as that translates through to spendable dollars, that starts to become an issue for the next leg of economic growth. So there's been the characterization of Q1 weakness as transitory. We've heard that a lot. At what point do you think the Fed or the market is going to stop using that label as a tool to explain away that weakness? You're right. There's a large degree of implied optimism on the part of policymakers when they call the weakness in the first quarter transitory. Now, there has historically been an issue with Q1 
data on the growth front in terms of seasonally adjusting certain components correctly. Presumably, that has been resolved, or at least steps have been taken toward a resolution on the data front. So, and to your point, Ben, how long will it take the Fed to acknowledge weak data being just that, weak data? The caveat there being that part of the Fed's role is to be more optimistic than the average investor on the economy because to some extent they want to avoid the risk of talking the market into a recession. And I guess I want to push back a little bit on that blanket characterization of weakness. I don't think that's really what you meant. And certainly the economic surprise index has been negative for quite some time. But there are a lot of points of strength. Q1 GDP was still 3.2%. Sure, we had some terrible employment data in February, but it doesn't look like it broadly shook the labor market. And in general, it seems that Q1 certainly was nowhere near as bad as some were prognosticating a few months ago, and in some ways continues to look decently healthy. And I think another area of strength, particularly this past week that we saw, was both the NAHB index and housing starts and building permits were not nearly as concerning as they were for much of 2018. And in fact, I think have been one of the chief beneficiaries of Powell's decision to lay off the rate hikes this year. I'd say glass half empty. And for once, I'm in the glass half full camp. Well, I prefer glass at half capacity. Ugh. Moving along, there's been a lot of chatter about how the trade war is playing out, what it means not only for the real economy, both in the U.S. and globally, but also what type of retaliatory measures that Beijing might be considering. A big one, which has always been in the Treasury market, is what happens if China decides to sell some of their significant Treasury holdings. And I think there's a lot of confusion and potentially misinformation out there as to what this actually would be. A classic emerging market reserve manager would sell their dollar assets actually in order to support their currency. Basically, you raise dollars in order to then buy your own currency or sell dollars in the open market. So that contrasts with the narrative of a purposeful devaluation or something like that. That's one of the reasons we think this probably is not going on, at least in scale as of yet, but it's at least worth walking through what the potential price impact would be. And the exact breakdown of what China holds in terms of treasuries is, frankly, just an unknown. But that's not to say that there isn't information that one can look at in order to make an educated guess, so to speak, about what widespread Chinese selling might look like. And in doing that, what we saw is, despite the fact that, generally speaking, foreign official holdings are skewed toward the front end of the curve. I think it was something like 75% or five years and in. So presumably any selling from any large central bank would be focused in that sector of the curve. And there's some historical precedent for that in the relatively recent past. A nice example is late 2015, early 2016. You saw disproportionate selling in kind of the one-year sector and one-year Treasury OIS spreads blow out very sharply. That being said, you know, at the end of the day, interest rates are a path of policy story, at least for risk-free rates. So this doesn't mean rates are going higher. It just means spreads to the path of policy might be altered a bit. 
You bring up a very good point, John, and I think that that's one of the areas in which one should be watching for market stress as it relates to a significant amount of selling or an atypical amount of selling from a major holder of treasuries, i.e. in spreads. We have seen a very persistent narrowing of spreads over the course of the last several quarters. We've been at moments on board with the idea that there will be episodic widening that then ultimately is reversed. But that definitely speaks to the degree of uncertainty around this topic that is presently in the market. I would also say context matters, right? It's not five years ago. We're at a different point in a macro cycle. But more operationally, primary dealer balance sheets are already pretty saturated with treasury holdings and repo rates are elevated. So were there to be a large flow, one could imagine a bigger impact, at least in funding costs, not necessarily the aggregate treasury market. But I would put one caveat there. There's been a lot of discussion about a potential repo facility coming in. That would be a great option in order to help manage some of this excess collateral and provide reserves and liquidity when needed. Of course, you know who knows about the timing or exact details of that, but it's an extra dimension that's helpful to keep in mind as we go forward. Is that something you think might be discussed in the minutes release from this last FOMC meeting? So it's, it's possible the idea of a repo facility will be discussed at the minutes. That being said, without getting too much into the weeds of Fed speak, it's not likely to be resolutely signaled in the communication. This seems like something that will take a few more months to go. So I'd say it's still kind of under consideration, not there yet. Just as an aside, recall in 2018 all the chatter that there was around the idea that the next big bubble in the world asset markets is going to be sovereign debt, treasuries in particular. Obviously, if that is the case, the experience of 2019 suggests that that bubble just got a bit larger. It's interesting that we've heard this topic increasingly addressed by a few Fed officials. Yeah, and this past week, we saw Esther George come out and say exactly that and make the case against preemptive rate cuts. And a loose parallel that we have drawn in the past has been the experience of 2000 and 2001 with the dot-com bubble that may be a bit too easy policy helped fuel the bubble in that case. And obviously, policymakers would want to avoid that this time around. And this just confirms basically a shadow Fed mandate, if you will, of financial stability. If your goal is to achieve maximum employment and price stability, creating bubbles is not going to help one achieve that and can be potentially destabilizing, running the risk of tripping an economy into a recession. This does bring up a deeper topic and an issue that has been in the market for a while, and that is what are the real vulnerabilities within the financial system in terms of potential asset bubbles? Bitcoin. Great point, John. Cryptocurrencies do come up quite often. And while we don't have a particularly strong view, there are other areas within the financial system that have gotten attention recently. The Fed has mentioned several times Leverage loans, that is something that's been out there. And while the stock market is surely well outside of any of our areas of expertise, I think some of these recent IPOs you're seeing in the tech space is another easy area to point to. But as we all know, it's invariably the one pocket within financial markets that we're not focused on that ultimately ends up being problematic. 
But all that being said, I think it's still pretty safe to assume that the next move for the Fed is going to end up being a cut. And that keeps us at least in the camp that steepening is the way to go from here. Yes, we've definitely been on about timing the cyclical re-steepening. 25 basis points, twos, tens. It's going to be a key level when we finally breach it. If we look within the CFTC's data, what we see is we're certainly not alone in this bias. There remains a large structural net spec short in the ultra long bond, whereas a lot of the short positions in the belly of the curve, as well as the front end, have been covered. Again, clearly a reflection of the fact that it's a relatively consensus trade we typically start to get a little bit nervous when we feel we've become too consensus. However, in being intellectually honest, this is the point in the cycle in which one should be playing for a re-steepening of the curve. I'd also say that the drift down or downward channel we've seen in 10-year yields is more consistent with the general reassessment of the growth outlook rather than the type of capitulation behavior. And that makes sense. If a lot of the short base had been washed out already, maybe not in the ultra long, but in other contracts, that helps a more gradual repricing than something sloppier. Who are you? What have you done with John Hill? I never thought I'd see the day that John Hill talked about a channel still a squiggly line inside that channel. Well, as John continues to display his healthy skepticism towards everything, it is worth noting that layering in some of the technical levels, as we tend to do, has historically been a effective way of gauging extremes, as well as projections for how far a particular move can run. And in that context, I think that the process of defining the new trading range for 10 and 30 year yields, which is clearly underway, hasn't completely run its course. The first time we retested or got close to the 2019 yield lows in 10 years, it was very clear that that was going to be an important resistance level. Not entirely certain that that is going to hold on the third test, which presumably will be forthcoming in the next few weeks. So are you expecting a retest of the lows in the very near term? I certainly do anticipate that we will push beyond that 234 level in tens, could easily achieve 225, might actually be predicated on a more dovish shift from the Fed. Now, whether that is an event that occurs before June remains to be seen. Nonetheless, I think that the importance of inflation to the Fed's next move cannot be overstated. And at the end of May, we do see the year-over-year -year core PCE numbers, which we expect will come in at 1.5%, a level that will surely trigger some consternation on the part of policymakers. Nonetheless, my biggest takeaway from this last week is that I love a rally in the treasury market like Kanye loves Kanye. In the week ahead, the treasury market, or at least team strategy at BMO, will be focused on Friday's early close and the long weekend as the unofficial beginning of summer. There's remarkably little economic data on the calendar. We do get durable goods, which we assume will be overshadowed by early exits to take advantage of the Memorial Day holiday. 
The one supply event that we have on the horizon is the 10-year tips auction. With real yields just slightly north of 50 basis points, the bottom of the prevailing range, we're generally optimistic about the prospects for the auction's takedown. With the caveat that the results of tips auctions very rarely set the tone in the overall treasury market. The Fed speak that is on the horizon combined with the FOMC minutes, we don't actually expect to reveal anything dramatic in terms of policy direction that will ultimately come down to how the inflation data plays out over the course of the next several months. We've been on board with the most recent rally, 10-year yields up against that 234 level makes sense. We would expect it at some point to break through 234. We'll be watching 225. The market loves round numbers or quasi round numbers. And in the very long end of the curve, we do expect the 30 year to lag at least incrementally with the front end of the curve, but still continue to perform well on an outright basis. In the event of any significant backup in treasury yields, Targeting 250 in 10s follows pretty intuitively. Beyond there, we'd be surprised if we saw 262 not hold in terms of a key dip buying opportunity. The technical profile continues to show a treasury market that is overbought. We see that both in MACD as well as stochastics. Now, this in and of itself doesn't necessitate a swift correction towards higher yields. However, it does make it incrementally more difficult to push to lower rates. A period of consolidation in and around the present level would help build up a volume bulge from which to stage the next attempt to push towards lower yields. The very traditional technical formation and one that we expect, which, as it plays out, will ultimately be constructive for the Treasury market. We recently learned about the delay of auto tariffs from the White House. Now, as those tariffs were relevant primarily for the EU and Japan, it really does little to take the focus off of the trade tensions between D.C. and Beijing. We're continuing to watch the shape of the curve. We've been on board with the re-steepening trade. That's still the primary trade of 2019. That said, 25 basis points in twos tens has proven a difficult level to breach. We'll be keeping an eye on that as the curve continues to drift incrementally higher. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. This concludes the 19th meeting of our Interest Rate Enthusiast Club. Please feel free to grab an extra donut on your way out. One per person, Ben. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. 
This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.